It's interesting, but uh, in the last two months, uh, I've received the news of six deaths um, associated with this congregation and its immediate family members, and one death uh, of a close friend's brother. Uh, None of them were really expected to die, uh, but all of them stepped out into eternity uh, just in the last 60 days. That's a lot, given the size of of my circle of acquaintances. And on the back of that information, I want to take this morning as we get started uh, just a silent survey. And by that I mean I'm not asking you to raise your hand. Uh, Please don't. Uh, You don't even have to write anything down, but I just want you to simply answer these questions in your own heart. In the past two months, how many of you have lost a relative or a friend uh, to death? In the past month, have you been affected by someone that you love being quite sick or facing Uh, the diagnosis of a chronic illness. In the past week, how many of you have been in pain? How many of you are in pain right now, today? How many of you feel like you're tired all the time? And how many people here, uh, you're just disillusioned, you're discouraged about your life and where it is at the moment? You know, the Bible tells us that human history began in a garden. And in that garden, there was a tree called the tree of life. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, had the opportunity to partake of that tree, but apparently they didn't do so before they disobeyed God and partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which resulted in the fall and the curse And that's why all of us are now subjected to disease and decay and disability and discouragement and, unless the Lord comes again quickly, physical death. The last chapter of the Bible introduces us to the fact that human history is really going to come full circle because there will be access to the tree of life again and there will be No more curse. So turn in your Bibles, if you will, to the last chapter in the Bible that reveals this expectation, Revelation 22. And I want to remind you that you're not just turning to the last chapter in the book of Revelation, but this is the conclusion of all 1,189 chapters of God's completed written Revelation. This is the conclusion of the Bible. This is what God wants us to know at the end. The last few messages, we have been dealing with the New Jerusalem uh, coming down out of heaven. And some of you might be a little bit worried about that. Because so far, it kind of reads as if the whole city is something that is cold. And, uh, you know, it's just hard stone and gems, and it's kind of uninviting. Well, look at this, verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. 
In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now clearly there is a sense here in which human history comes full circle, doesn't it? Human history began in a garden. And in some respects, human history will eventuate in a garden. But it isn't just a full circle. It's really more like an upward spiral because we end up much higher than Adam and Eve began just before the fall. This is going to be better than Eden. This is Eden 2.0. So today, for the last time, we're going to give our attention to our heavenly home, the New Jerusalem that is associated with our own position in relationship to Jesus Christ. We are his bride, and he is the groom, and this city is called the Bride of the Lamb. He is wedded to it, and this is our eternal home. So first of all, in this passage, we are told in verse 1 that down that broad street of gold, which is transparent as glass, there's going to be flowing a wide river of water. Now, Christian imagery portrays all of us as coming to the end of our earthly existence at the bank of a dark river. We sing about it. Uh, On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye. Uh, There's an old southern gospel hymn. Pastor Brian might know this one. I don't know if any of us... any any else of you do, but it's actually called When I Cross That River. You know that one, Pastor? I'm not sure if it's the same tune, but it's uh, it's called When I Cross, it's talking about this river when you die. If you look it up, it's very Southern Gospel. And they specifically talk about this river, and yet the fact is that throughout our hymnology and our gospel songs, there are numerous references to Christians coming up to the edge of the water and then passing over the waves and then coming to safe harbor on the other side. If you can look for it, uh, you'll see that it really is kind of sprinkled all through the songs and the hymns that we sing. Now, for someone who does not know the Lord, that crossing will be one in which he sinks uh, right beneath the surface of the water and is seen no more. But if you are a Christian and all of your confidence is in the Savior, then you can count on it that your safe passage across 
is guaranteed. However, John Bunyan does get it right in Pilgrim's Progress when he writes about Christian and Hopeful going all the way to the end, right up to this riverbank and wading down into that river. In his allegory, you remember that Bunyan portrays the fact that not all Christians die in the same way. Hopeful uh, doesn't have any problem at all, but when Christian wades in, he begins to feel that all the waves have gone over his head. So he cries out to his friend, and Bunyan portrays him as, as kind of losing his mental capacity to even hold on to the promises of God in that moment. And yes, there are Christians who experience that same sense of just being overwhelmed in the end. They're shaken in their last moments, and they're fearful of the unknown. I do want to assure you that the God who knows us knows what type of death suits us best and what will best prepare us for his presence on the other side. But there is this experience that Bunyan also portrays correctly for those who feel that their feet are slipping in the end. And that's why he has hopeful cry out to Christian, be of good cheer, my brother. I can feel the bottom and it is sound. And so it will be for every one of us who truly knows the Lord. His promises will prove to be true in that moment. But once we make that journey, there is another river. A river that is also the topic of one of our older but well-known hymns, Shall We Gather at the River, which flows from the throne of God and that hymn is talking about the river described for us in verse 1. So let's look at, first of all, the nature of this river. See if you can picture this within your mind's eye to the imagination that God has given to you. You can imagine here a vast, broad street that connects with a whole network of roads passing through those 12 gates, where each gate, you remember, is a single solid pearl. And down that avenue, cutting right through its middle, is this river. The passage refers to it as the pure river of the water of life, clear as crystal. And it seems to be that we will be able to drink from it. In other words, it's not just there for beauty. Now, I'm saying that because there are really two references to support that idea. The first one is from chapter 7, verse 17, which talks about believers who are coming out of the great tribulation. Our Lord promises that he will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to living fountains of waters, or literally uh, the fountains of the waters of life. He will lead them to those fountains. And then in chapter 22, verse 17, the latter part of the verse says, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Now, we all know that in Isaiah 55, there's a call to everyone who is thirsty to come to the waters, and that's figurative speech. Our Lord portrays himself as living water, and his invitation to the woman at the well is to come to him for that water so that she will never thirst again, and that also is clearly symbolic. Uh, finally, in John 7, the Lord says that all who believe in him 
out of that person's belly will flow rivers of living water. And he was speaking there of the Spirit of God. We know that because the next verse tells us that. So we know that there are places in Scripture where receiving eternal life from God is portrayed as taking a deep and satisfying drink. In other words, we know that water is often used symbolically or illustratively to portray the nature of what we receive in salvation. But when you look at the wording in verses 1 and 17, along with chapter 7, verse 17, it does seem to present here a literal river of literal water, clear as crystal, crystal, and the indication is that the people of God will actually drink from it. And I want to comment more on that in just a moment. But first we need to note at the end of verse 1, the source of that river. It says it flows out from underneath a throne. The throne of God and the Lamb. And you remember from the, uh, the uh, letters to the seven churches that the Son of God has taken his seat with the Father on his throne. Now there are over 40 references to the throne of God in the book of Revelation. And I want to point out that those references make up over three quarters of the references to God's throne in all the New Testament. Uh, there's uh, 260 chapters in the New Testament. There's only 22 chapters in Revelation. But three quarters of the references to God's throne are in those 22 chapters. And I want to point out from that, uh, just a point of application here, that it really is impossible for anyone to read the New Testament and then approach God without having to take into account that he is seated on a throne. Uh, even as believers, when we are called on to approach him, we are told that we are coming to a throne. Now, it is a throne of grace, right? But it is a throne. And you cannot deprive God of his position. You cannot make him other than he is. Just because you're used to living in a society that is more egalitarian or anti-authoritarian. He is seated on a throne. As is his son right now. So what does that mean for people today who take the position of those in the parable that Jesus told who said, we will not have this man rule over us. What will it be like for them to appear in the presence of God and have their vision filled with a throne? It will be a startling discovery to find out that heaven is not egalitarian at all, but that there is a ruler sitting on a throne. For those of us who know the Lord, I want to assure you that we will see with our own eyes that it is a gracious throne for his people because out from under that throne is streaming a river of the water of eternal life that Jesus has provided for us. Now, if we do drink from it, I think it's important to note that it will not be because there is any deficiency in the eternal life that we possess right now. We have to remember that we are not waiting for eternal life in the present. We possess eternal life from the moment that we accept Christ, right? 
but unquestionably drinking from that river will enhance in some way our, our sense of the joy and satisfaction that we do have in Christ. And I think that is really indicated when you look at what is revealed about the tree of life next to the river in verse 2. It says that on either side of the river is the tree of life. And I hope it doesn't bother you that the tree is on both sides of the river. Uh, Because the God who made the variety of trees that we have today really won't have any trouble creating a tree or simply having the original tree from the Garden of Eden growing on both sides of the river in the New Jerusalem. But what we are really interested in is the fact that this tree bears 12 kinds of fruit. And it says that each tree yields its fruit every month. Now that sounds a little strange, but when you look at the Greek wording of the verse, it actually appears to be the case that you have a tree here that is unlike any tree in this creation in this sense that it produces multiple kinds of fruit. Right? In this creation, uh, things produce after their kind. So apple trees produce apples, oranges produce oranges, and so on. But this tree in the new creation now produces 12 kinds of fruit, and the wording here really indicates that it's actually one kind each month, meaning that you have a cycle of fruit being produced throughout the months. Now, that brings up another issue. Do you realize that in eternity there will still be chronology? Uh, That may surprise us because we have a statement back in chapter 10, verse 6 that is often misunderstood. This is the passage where you have a a strong angel and he's got one foot on the sea, one foot on the land, and he cries out that time shall be no more, which gives us the impression that from then on there is no such thing as time because, hey, now we're in eternity. But that isn't what that statement says. In fact, the Bible talks about the fact that In the future, there will be ages of ages, which uh, means that you really have ages in the womb of other ages yet to be born. It's ages of the ages. Uh, In other words, there's going to be chronology and this continual unfolding of periods of time. Well, right here in the last chapter of the Bible, there are apparently months to mark the time And what was meant in chapter 10 is not that time shall be no more, but if you look carefully at the context and the wording, it means that there won't be any more delay. The angel is crying out, there won't be any more delayed time, but that all of the judgments of God are now going to come to their conclusion. In other words, God isn't going to hold the tide back anymore. It's all going to happen right now. There's no more time for delay. That's what it means. But even though there will not be any night in eternity, as it says in verse 5, that doesn't mean you won't have any succession of measurable periods of time. And that clearly will be the case because this tree is on a monthly cycle. And if it does produce a different fruit every month, and if, as it says, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, the indication is also that this tree is designed for people to partake of, which seems to support the fact that the river is also for people's enjoyment and partaking. And I think the conclusive argument for that 
is when the Lord actually promises overcomers in chapter 2, verse 7, I will give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And that's an interesting reference because the word Eden uh, means garden of delight, but in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the word that is used is paradise, which is the Persian word for a delightful garden. That's the very place that our Lord referred to when he said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in that place, in paradise, in the garden of delight. Well, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life. And then he tells you it's a literal and specific tree because he gives you the location, which is in the midst of the paradise, the delightful garden, the remade Eden of God. Now, just for a moment, I want to consider the healing of those leaves. What does it mean that they are for the healing of the nations? Because that doesn't quite seem to fit the eternal state where everything is already perfected. So what is the healing of the nations in a perfect environment? Well, let me point out that this unclear reference really has to be governed by certain biblical statements that are much more definitive for us. It's one of the principles of Bible interpretation. So go back to chapter 21 and notice what it says in verses 3 and 4. Earlier in the passage, when God made the new heavens and the new earth, verse 4 says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. In chapter 22, verse 3 says, And there shall be no more curse. So these clear statements have to govern what is a little bit confusing for us. And basically it means this. When it says that the leaves are for the healing of the nations, it's not talking about the fact that in the eternal state, when the new Jerusalem descends out of heaven, you're still going to have beings out there who are wounded and sick and diseased and need healing. In the new earth, there's not going to be any third world countries that need assistance from the citizens of the new Jerusalem in order to heal their sick and provide clean water and give them food packages, kind of like we do today. That isn't going to be the case because clearly there's no more of that going on. We got that assurance, chapter 21. Instead, I think this is referring to a backward glance at previous ages. I'm, I'm giving you a lot this morning, I know. It's a lot to take in. You stayed up to midnight. So shake your head a little bit. Wake up a little bit. It's okay. <laughs> if you doze off, it's okay. In other words, it's not saying that partaking of the fruit of the tree and drinking the water of life that comes from the throne means that there is any lack in God's people at that time. But it means that by partaking of these things, I think the people are glancing back and they are reminded of their healing and they're enhanced in their joy by remembering what Christ has provided for them and the life that is theirs and the healing that he has done for us. I was trying to think of an illustration 
for this, and it seems to be that this is like partaking of the Lord's table, which I thought was appropriate given that we have the Lord's table this morning. When we take those elements this morning, we are not realizing in the moment any greater salvation than what we already possess, right? But most certainly, we are reminded of the life that is ours and the fruit that comes from experiencing the blood of Christ. And so our joy, our security is enhanced as we partake of it. So whatever it is to drink the water of life, whatever it is to eat of the fruit of the tree of life, it's not because there's any deficiency in our state or any possibility of losing the life that Christ has given to us. This isn't a top-up of eternal life somehow. No more curse, no more death, no more pain, no crying. All of that's done away, and yet there's still the river to drink from. There's still the fruit to partake of. There's still the leaves for the healing of the nations. And I think it might just be a reminder for us of what God has done to get us there. And so it's a tool, really, by which His grace is magnified in our partaking. Let me just close this thought by saying this. What God has done here is prepare us for ravishing delight. In eternity, have you thought about this? In eternity, we are going to be able to eat and drink. Now those are two of the greatest delights that God has given to His creatures. And we are going to continue to enjoy that. And there won't be any lack. And there won't be any jealousy because some are filled and others are hungry. Now, all of us will have free access to these things and as much uh, as you want to enjoy. Some people, someone says, well, I don't like fruit. You're going to like this fruit. <laughs> Your appetite will change. We'll all be satisfied with the good things that God provides for us for all eternity. So what a gracious, what a wonderful God we have. Well, if you look at verses 3 to 5 now, it tells us all about who these things are prepared for. It tells us about the recipients of heaven and what they will do in heaven. You ever wondered about that? Well, in the first place, there's a word in verse 3 that identifies the people who have access to these things in the previous verses. Now, it could say Christians. He could have said believers. He could have said the sheep who have followed the shepherd. He could have said those who accepted Christ or even the sons of God, the heirs with Christ. But instead, he uses what word? His servants. Now, does that bother you? Does it bother you that in eternity you're still a servant? In fact, the word here is bondservant. The word here is slave which is a trigger word in many cultures today. Well, let me just show you something. Turn back to chapter 1. If you have any trouble thinking about this, keep in mind that the book actually begins in this way. Verse 1 says, this whole book is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which means, among other things, it reveals him as the central character in the book. It's a revelation about Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his what? Servants, literally, again, slaves. Back in chapter 22, verse 6, when the angel speaks to John, he says, 
these words are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show, here it is again, his servants the things which must shortly take place. In other words, those two references say the same thing. The book opens and ends by saying these revelations, this book is for certain people. This book is written for people who are in the position of slavehood, servants of God. Well, in eternity, my friend, that doesn't change. We are sons and daughters, yes, but still we are servants of the Most High. Now, there's nothing unappealing about this at all. Just think about Adam, and let me ask you a question. In the first Eden, the first Garden of Eden, was Adam to be inactive? Was he designed to sit around the garden all day and do nothing? No, of course not. Scripture says he was put in the garden to work and to be productive and to enjoy the satisfaction of the work of his hands. You say, well, I thought work was part of the curse. No, it's not. Although it feels that way sometimes. And let me tell you why. Because in this life, no matter what we put our hand to, we discover that the task is just beyond us. We, you know, we are just so weak in these bodies. We are so easily worn out. We get injured in the process. And then we break down through the years, and in the end, it's just all so monotonous. It just takes so long to accomplish just so little. Why is it like that? Because whatever we attempt to do in this life, we meet with constant resistance. Where we expect to find good plants, there are weeds and thorns and pests. We constantly battle resistance. The undoing of all of our achievements. I mean, there's hardly anything you can work on today and then leave it for a few days or even a few weeks, and it's the same when you get back. You think of any hobby or profession where this is not the case. You really can't, right? Because weeds sprout, wood rots, metal rusts, dust settles, food spoils, bodies deteriorate, machineries break down. It's like there's some conspiracy out there to undo all of our work, and it just creates for us such aggravation. In fact, this is why we have whole industries that are dedicated to the work of maintenance, but what would it be like to exist in a glorified body in the Garden of Eden 2.0? There'll be no sweat from exhaustion in a perfect world. And you get to fulfill tasks given by God for you to complete, and, and then you get all of eternity to enjoy them. The only way I think I can really draw a picture of this for you is to have you imagine the kinds of things that people love to do and never get tired of doing. Now, what is it that you would get out of bed for every morning of your life, and you would gladly do it all day long, and you would hardly ever tire from doing it? In fact, your only grief is that it does make you tired. So you've got to rest, and then you can't wait to get up the next morning and do it all over again. You just love to do it. When I was a boy... You may not know this, but I, I love to ski, a big snow skier. And there was nothing I anticipated more than a trip to the Snowy Mountains. Uh, we'd stay at the lodge my father built right outside of Jindabyne. And uh, we would ski every day for a couple of weeks 
we do this probably a few times in the wintertime. I just couldn't wait to get up and hit the slopes. Uh, and that's why, you know, Mark Twain once commented, find a job doing the thing you love to do because then you'll never work a day in your life. Of course, I can't ski like that anymore. Age and time have caught up with me. But imagine being able to do something that you genuinely love to do every single day. Well, that's a bit what it's going to be like to serve God in eternity. There will never be any sense of worry or stress or weariness. You won't hurt your back trying to pick something up. Your joints won't ache doing it and swell. And it's not going to be monotonous. But there will be true achievement. And in the end, some glory from doing it that we can offer back to God. His slaves will serve him. But best of all, verse 4, they will see his face. Now in this first creation, nobody can do that, right? When Moses asked for the privilege, Moses, top of the line, asked for the privilege. God said, no man can look on my face and live. And if Isaiah 6 is a revelation about the state of things in heaven, even those heavenly creatures placed around the throne who sing God's attributes cover their faces because God dwells in unapproachable light. Just think about that for a moment. For a human being to try and lift his eyes and look would be to literally unmake himself. But Jesus said this, right? That the pure in heart will see God. And John said in his gospel that nobody has ever done that. Nobody has ever seen God in his raw, pure essence. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that right now, we're only seeing through a glass darkly. It's tinted. But then it says that one day, we are going to see him face to face. So evidently, the whole composition of our beings will be raised in some capacity because, my friends, we are going to gaze on God's face. It's no wonder that this has been historically called the beatific vision. People have dreamed about this from the beginning of time. You know, throughout history, slaves were often forbidden to look in the eyes of their owners. This was considered a privilege. Even today, you know, famous celebrities that are so full of themselves tell their staff, well, don't look at me in the eyes. You know, we don't want the help looking at us directly. In the ancient world, if a person was a sentenced criminal, if he had displeased the king or the emperor, he was often banished and never again allowed to look on the face of his sovereign. That was their, that was their punishment. Banishment from court and the presence of the king or queen. In fact, can you imagine, just imagine this, you're related to someone inseparably. You've got a close relative, a brother, a mother, a father. You made them so angry, they would say to you, you will never see my face again. Imagine that. I mean, you are dead to me. That will be part of the punishment for those who lived as rebels to the throne of God in this life. But his servants, his slaves, his bond servants will see his face. They will meet him eye to eye. What kind of slave gets that honor? You talk about amazing grace. People like ourselves, people from the ash heap, people whose very 
righteousness is loathsome to God. People made from the dust of the earth with a fallen nature. A nature that repels God like, like two magnets with the same pole. And yet by his grace, through our faith, we're going to see his face. Yes, and we're going to display his name. Look at it. Verse 4. His name shall be on their foreheads. Now, our Lord spoke about this again back in the letters to the churches in chapter 3, verse 12. He made the statement that the overcomers will not go out from the temple of my God anymore. And then it says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. So Jesus says that Christians who are the overcomers will actually have the name of God written on them, the name of the new Jerusalem, and his own new name. If you want to get just a little idea of what that means, think of how people today love to spend exorbitant amounts of money for an item of clothing that has a certain logo on it. A sports team, a place they visited, a favorite movie theme. Now, for Christmas, my wife got me a hat that has RF on it. Roger Federer. I'm not a Federer fan. She said, I thought it stood for Rafa. No, I've got to take that back. <laughs> but we, you know, we proudly wear these items to identify with uh, a sports person or a team or uh, you know, something like that. Well, what will it mean to wear on our very person the name of the New Jerusalem, the name of God and the new name of Jesus Christ? It will mean that we are completely possessed by him and in possession of him who died for us, and we are the eternal citizens of the place he has prepared for us. And then, fourthly, at the end of verse 5, it says we will reign with him. And again, in another one of the letters to the churches, the Lord said that to the one who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Now again, just stop and think about the grace of God that is lavished upon us simply by forgiving us of our sins. Just think about that. That is immeasurable grace. But to forgive our sins and take us out of the ash heap, to raise us up together with Christ, to seat us with him on his throne, and to be told that we will not only be his privileged bond servants for all eternity and secured with his name inscribed on us, but at the same time as slaves, we will actually reign with him forever. What kind of a slave rules with his master? This is amazing, matchless, incomprehensible grace. It is no wonder that the scripture says that all eternity will bring glory to the riches of his grace. Now, let me tell you what tends to diminish our joy in this revelation. Turn to Romans 8. We're almost done. When you come through the first seven chapters of Romans, you are full of assurance when it comes to your heavenly blessings, right? Uh, chapter 5 begins with the fact that, hey, you're justified by faith, you've been reconciled to God, uh, you have peace with God, 
You're told about your permanent standing in grace. You're even told that the trials and tribulations in this life, well, they just work the fruit of endurance in you, which gives you the confident expectation that you really are the child of God. All of this is going on in your favor, right? In chapter 8, you get the introduction of things that sort of dampen your pleasure a little bit. One of them is described in the first half of the chapter, which is a continuing struggle that we all have with the remnants of indwelling sin. Uh, now, chapter 6 told us, you remember, that the power of that thing is broken, and the reason that it's broken is because you've been released from the law, from the principle of working for your salvation. Paul explains this in chapter 7, that the law actually arouses your sin nature. Okay, now you're, uh, you're, you're released from the power of following that. Don't have to earn it anymore. However, you've still got this struggle in your sin nature. still there. Then when you come to verse 18, he refers to the sufferings of this present time. So you not only have to deal with your still present indwelling sin nature, that's internal, but you're also faced with the sufferings of this present world, that's external. And just to encourage you a little bit, verses 19 to 22, he says there that your experience with suffering, it's not just you, it's not just an individual thing, but all of creation is groaning in chorus with you. We're all in this together on this earth, and that's because of the fall. Now, those are the two things that often disturb genuine believers to the point where they can hardly be confident in their standing as the justified children of God, right? It's that constant struggle with the sin nature, and then all of this external stuff we got to endure. Well, listen to God's answer about that, verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's our destiny. It means that we are literally being stretched into the image of God's Son. And that's why it hurts, by the way. Verse 30, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, whom he justified, these he also glorified. And what you got here is an unbroken string of five verbs that all speak of completed action. All right? Foreknown predestined, called, justified, and yes, glorified. In other words, this is the divine perspective on your life right now. Right now, you're in the middle of some circumstance with all the struggles Roman 8 describes, and from your perspective, it looks like, hey, maybe I'm not actually a child of God at all. But if you ask God about it, here's how it works. He says, no, my child. You are foreknown and predestined and called and justified. And you say, yes, but I have so much trouble believing that because of what I'm struggling with, what I'm going through. But what about this? Whom he justified, these he also glorified. That is a done deal. Regardless of what you're, what you're facing in this life. It's a done deal. You're glorified. Now, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. 
Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It just can't be done. And that's why in Revelation 22.6, we are given the assurance that even though these things are so far beyond our ability to picture in our imagination, nevertheless, he assures us, you know what? These words are faithful and true. There is a river, the delights of which will satisfy your soul. There is a tree, and to he who overcomes, I will give to eat of that fruit. And there are 12 kinds of fruit, and they are produced every month in their season. And those leaves point to the healing that all the people of all the nations have received. And his servants are in sheer bliss because they get to be his slaves for all eternity, and yet they get to see him face to face and have his name on their foreheads, and they reign with him forever. This is faithful, and this is true. You can take it to the bank. Now, I'll let you know a little secret. It is actually God's intention that all of us experience a certain amount of vexation in this life. It was never meant to be easy, right? Because that is what helps us to point up. So in our closing minutes, I want to give you something that the Scripture itself gives us as an antidote just to take a little bit of the edge off the vexation. And it's really twofold. In the first place, here's a way, here's a way to deal with the pain and the stress and the emptiness and the sense of disillusionment and the regrets because now you're in middle age and you realize how little you've actually done, is a scriptural way to deal with it. Thankfulness. Just think of all the passages in the Bible that urge people to be grateful and thankful. Count your blessings, my friend, and name them, and you're going to have to do it, I think, one by one. If you keep a journal, it's actually quite helpful if you begin the day writing down five or six specific things for you to be thankful for. I've done this. And when you do, you really start to think of things that you never even considered to be blessings before. For example, woke up yesterday. I got to wake up next to my beautiful wife. That is the first blessing of my day. Uh, then, let me tell you about it, I get to have a hot shower. You know how many people in the world don't even get clean water to drink? Let alone anticipate a hot shower in the morning. The next thing I thought of was the fact that, you know what? I'm going to have coffee. Uh, that happens nearly every day. It's like magic. It just appears in the coffee machine when I get up. Can you believe that? Water, food, coffee. You know what? There's folded laundry in my drawers, so I have something clean to wear. It appears there like magic every day. Seriously, have you ever stopped to think about what you're enjoying every day in a world that really does often cause us great vexation? And yet with all of these blessings, I've really only just named the very least of God's mercies. There are far, far greater ones that will come to your mind when you start naming them one by one. Now, 
combine thankfulness with this ingredient. We got one ingredient, right? One more to go. Here it is. Hopefulness. Of course, hope is used frequently in the epistles because we live in hope. And I want to remind you that Bible hope is not having an uncertain wishfulness about the future. You know, I kind of I hope it's going to pan out for us. Not quite sure. That's not Bible hope. Bible hope is a confident expectation. It's hope because we haven't received it yet, but you know what? There's no doubt that it's coming. So we just live in this confident, warm expectation that it will be mine. Hopefulness. Now, just combine thankfulness about all that God does for you, even in the midst of the vexation of life, and combine that with a confident expectation about your future, and those two things will cure the sick feeling in your soul that comes from time to time or day to day. Right now, it's not one and done, right? It won't cure one time, and that's all you need. But if you will deliberately turn your mind towards that, you will find that God will lift you up. You will find that you can walk on high places today with thankfulness and hopefulness. And doing that is what really gives us the great assurance that Revelation 22.7 directly applies to us. I mean, we're told at the end of the verse, Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Well, how do you keep these words? You ever think about that? How do you keep the words of this prophecy when, from chapter 4, it's all future stuff? Chapter 4 and 5, the throne scene. Chapter 6, the tribulation and so on. How do you keep those words when they haven't happened yet? Well, clearly, this is talking about believing them. And really adjusting your spirit by keeping those things in view while living in light of that expectation. Blessed are those who keep them. In other words, this is not something fantastical in your point of view. It's not something that's way out there and it's just totally divorced from your thoughts throughout the work week. No, you keep it near. You keep it dear to your heart with a sense of expectation that it's going to happen one day. People who do that are blessed. They are keeping the words of this book. And friends, thankfulness and hopefulness are two ways to keep on doing that. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, we thank you for the wonderful promises in your book, promises that we can cling to when times are hard. Thank you that we do have a future. We are filled with a great, confident expectation of what you will do because you said it, and your word is your bond, and so you will do it. And we just commit ourselves to you as we enter this new year that we would faithfully follow you as your servants, that we would love you and serve you in this life knowing that it is preparation for the next. Comfort us in the midst of loss this past week. Give us a sense of your presence as we partake of the Lord's Supper. For Jesus' sake we pray.